Welcome to Make Good, the podcast about yarn and knitting from Scratch Supply Co. We're recording today in downtown Lebanon, New Hampshire, and we're really excited to be here. I'm Karen. And I'm Jessica. I'm scared of the episode this week. It's a little scary, (laughs) but it's also kind of exciting. So we're going to be talking about steaking. Yay! (laughs) Finally! (laughs) Jessica has yay feelings about this. I do not, for reasons that we've talked about in previous episodes, the one time I tried to do this, it didn't go well. So we're going to learn about how to make it go less badly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In fairness, I think that all of us as knitters have the potential to make horrible mistakes or feel betrayed by our yarn. So you're not the only one. (laughs) We should probably tell everybody what steaking is in case somebody's not familiar. Just feels like a scary word. (laughs) Steaking is spelled S-T-E-E-K-I-N-G. So if you're trying to look up YouTube tutorials or Google it for any reason. And you'll need to fight with your autocorrect. Oh, yes. Because autocorrect definitely wants that word to be steak. S-T-E-A-K. No. It, yes. It surely <laughs> does. And it's super not what you're looking for. So <laughs> if you search for steak and you get prime rib, T-bones, I don't know. It's because autocorrect is betraying you. Okay, so Jessica, what is it? So steaking is a technique, and it allows you to knit something completely in the round and then make changes to it that allow for different features in your garment, like armholes or different neck openings or front openings. I think people most commonly associate steaking with cardigans. Right. Like you're going to knit a sweater completely in the round, and then you just cut the front of it open. And that's what I mean when I say make changes. You are actually taking scissors to your knitting and cutting up an entire column of stitches. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe a partial column. Maybe you're making like a placket neck in a Henley or just those armholes so it doesn't have to be cut from top to bottom. You're doing some shaping. Okay, so I can picture what you would have to cut to make a pullover into a cardigan. I can Mm -hmm. visualize what that looks like. When you say cutting armholes, do you mean, are the sleeves already made? Are you like steaking twice and then seaming? What is that? I don't understand that. (laughs) So when you're steaking armholes, some of it will have to do with the designer's specifics, but you're knitting in the round through the yoke And you are cutting the arm size, so the length from the top of the shoulder down to the armpit. And it might just be a straight line, like down a single column of stitches. But there could also be shaping to it, depending on the inset of the shoulder or the shaping of the shoulder and the yoke of this sweater. And then you will either inset and attach an already knit sleeve, whether that's also knit in the round because the chances are good it has color work. Or you can have a flat sleeve that you'll seam and attach, or you can pick up stitches and knit down. There are lots of options for doing this. Okay, but it's not like you have knit the entire sweater as one big tube and you're steaking to separate the arms from the body. Nope, you're knitting the sweater as one big tube, and then you're cutting holes and seaming the top of the shoulder and then popping on some arms. Karen's face is amazing. Yeah, right the now. geometry of that is kind of messing with my head a little bit. Yeah, diagrams are super helpful when you're thinking about shaping with steaks. But let's talk some more about what steaks are. It's a helpful technique primarily associated with color work. 
because when you're knitting stranded color work, if you're only knitting in the round, your tension's going to be more even because for most knitters, your knit stitch and your purl stitches are a little different from one another. And you don't have to deal with the struggle of trying to keep track of your floats and your tension purling across the backside of a stranded color work piece of fabric. Right. Depending on how you knit in the first place, that's maybe a little clumsy because it's not something you do a lot. I guess also depending a little bit on like your your hands. (laughs) For sure. And I think that depending on the yarn that you're using, too, it can be more or less difficult to see what you're looking at when you're carrying those floats on the purl side because you're not really seeing the fabric because you've got so many floats stacked up underneath the backside of the fabric, right? So it's much more complicated, in my opinion, to purl stranded color work than it is to just knit and work on the outside of your work. That said, sometimes people steek single color projects too. Oh, sure. They don't have to be done in color work. Some people just really don't like purling and will do things like reimagine the garment to avoid having to do it, which is awesome. Good on them. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about some of the benefits of sure. steeking in your project. You avoid pearls. Like yeah. Karen said, some people have the strong aversion to purling. I think I used to be like that in my early years of knitting. I was like, purling is dumb. (laughs) (laughs) That was a very unskilled and uninformed opinion that I had. I was just like, I don't like doing this. It's awkward and slow. It's not my jam. There's only two stitches. You can't just throw one of them all the way out the window. (laughs) And, And I didn't throw it all the way out the window, but I was like, how could I do this less? And me asking that question did not lead me to steaking. I will say that right now. Because I don't steek often, but at some point I got better at purling and was less grouchy about it. Sure. But that aversion, totally valid. Maybe you don't like a knit stitch. Maybe you only like to purl. Everyone's got their own thing. We were talking earlier about people's tension being different with knits and purls, and that will vary wildly depending on the knitter. But if you are somebody who has a big variation between those two, steeking will allow you to create your garment in a way that will eliminate those tension changes because you're just knitting. Mm-hmm. When you're knitting only on the right side of your fabric in color work, it helps you hide your color changes better. And also, there are fewer ends to weave in. And I had to really consider that. Like, what does that mean? Why are there fewer ends to weave in? But if you're planning on steaking your project and you're carrying your floats and you're having an easier time of managing them, it's easier to hide, like, long carries of color up the inside. Oh, sure. You could probably do that if you were purling too, but I think it's just an easier way to do it. I could say that for myself, as somebody who struggles with string management. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you do. (laughs) That if I were purling color work, I would be more tempted to cut because it's like, ah, too many strings. I would be more tempted to just be like, I'll deal with this later. And later would come upon me and I'd be like, oh, darn it. What have I done? (laughs) Last week, Karen made me a problem. So this can all feel a little bit overwhelming, but don't be overwhelmed thinking about this because I would like to give you some context for the benefit of the time that you live in. (laughs) (laughs) Like this day today, knitter friends, you have access to a whole world of resources. When steaking was invented as a technique, it was developed by Shetland knitters on the islands. They were knitting Fair Isle sweaters and it was definitely pre-internet. They didn't have Reddit groups about knitting. (laughs) They didn't have Zoom to call a knitting friend or a local yarn shop. 
They didn't have any of that. There were no step-by-step tutorials online anywhere. Forget about a YouTubes. (laughs) So (laughs) it's a doable thing and you have so much support. So don't be scared. We're here to help you. In fairness, when this was invented, I think superwash yarn also didn't exist. Oh, yeah. Fiber was less complicated. And I will say, the time steaking went wrong for me. It was my choice of yarn that did me in. I set myself up for failure by trying it for the first time with superwash fingering weight yarn that was a neon yellow color that my eyeballs couldn't focus on. Yeah, that was hard. (laughs) It was hard to watch you knit that. But when steaking was invented, the yarn that was commonly used was sort of the optimal yarn for at least your first attempt at this technique, which was sticky and grabby and setting yourself up for success by not having yarn that's going to slippery run away from you. You've probably heard before from other knitters or your own experience or your yarn shop or wherever that when you're doing color work, untreated, by untreated I mean not super washed, natural wool that's kind of grabby is best for color work because those stitches want to hug up next to each other. You want to do a color work sweater? An alpaca silk blend might not be your best first option because it's really slippery, but like a nice plumpy sticky Shetland wool or, you know, anything that's got a little grab to it is going to be nice. It's going to behave for you. If you pull your needles out accidentally, those stitches aren't just going to crumple and fall apart. You're going to have a nice little row of chubby little stitches that are just waiting for the needle to come back. (laughs) Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about what the anatomy of a steak looks like? Yes. A steak is cut in the center of a panel that's called a bridge. A lot of times people will just say like your steaking panel, but like the technical term for that set of stitches in your fabric is called the bridge. And most commonly, steaks are worked over an odd number of stitches. Small steak panels have a minimum of five stitches. I've seen steak panels be instructed to be as wide as nine stitches. I'm going to mention this because it's less common, but someone will send us a note to tell me there are even numbered steak panels as well. With an odd number steak panel, you're cutting that center one in an even number steak panel. So if they're like 10 stitches, Your center numbers are stitches number five and six. If you kind of stretch your fabric and pull those apart a little bit, you'll see the ladder joining stitch five and six. That's where you'll be cutting instead of in the center of a stitch. You'll be cutting in between two stitches. So, okay, because this is something I just mentally struggle with a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Like, let's all just take a moment. We're going to close our eyes and we're going to visualize a column of stitches and our sharp little scissors, and we're going to just zoop right up it. Depending on whether you've knit top down or bottom up, you are either looking at a column of V's with a open part facing up, or you're looking at a column of V's with the open part facing down. Mm-hmm. Because I have a really hard time sometimes telling the difference between the space in between my two stitches and just mentally inverting that stitch. Sure. That's something that you're going to need to keep in mind as you're identifying which column to cut is how you made that column and what it's going to look like. Yes. And one of the ways that you make that process easier for yourself if you're sticking a color work project is that when you're knitting your bridge, you are alternating colors across your bridge. Oh. And that changes as you travel up your steak. 
So if you were knitting, we're just going to use a five-stitch bridge as the example. Say I am knitting a sweater that just has color work in the yoke, for the sake of simplicity, and it's a two-color sweater. So I'm knitting a red sweater with white color work. What could go wrong? Like a number of things. (laughs) But it's a high-contrast, easy-to-visualize example, so we're going to roll with it. We're doing red and white color work all over this sweater. It's, I don't know, it's a Santa sweater. It's very festive. (laughs) There are snowflakes in vision with me. So you're going to be alternating the color work in your bridge. So if you have like a big section of red, that's primarily the main color, but you're carrying the white as the color work in that section, you can alternate so that your stitches one and five that are touching your main fabric are white, stitches two and four are red, and stitch three in the center, your centerline stitch, will also be white. Oh, so then you're just cutting up the center of your white stitch in Mm -hmm. this case. Yep. Sometimes you'll see just sections of it having the color work because they break up. So your color work doesn't necessarily travel the whole thing all the time, but maybe you have color work at the bottom of your sweater. So you do the alternating rows there, and then there's like an expanse of one color. So your bridge is just all one color. And then up in the yoke, that happens again. So you alternate those colors. So it's either every other stitch, or sometimes you'll see bridges knit in a checked pattern. It'll be stitches one, three, and five are white. And then on the next round, stitches one, three, and five will be red. And two and four will alternate between red and white as well. So you're staggering those colors. Huh. They're both common visual techniques in a steak bridge. But to additionally make it easier to follow your cutting line, as part of the securing your steak process, the first step lots of knitters take is basting your center stitch because it helps you keep your place. And if you're not familiar with what basting is, it's most often a sewing term. It's when you're using a needle and thread. Here you'll just use some yarn, like a contrast color yarn, and you're running big, loose stitches. So it'll go in at the bottom and then like an inch up, you'll put your needle back in. It's just like a running stitch that goes up that center column of your bridge so that you can see that's where the center column is. Right. Really, the thing that could go wrong at this stage is you lose track of that column and you like veer off to the right or the left. So anything you can do to simplify that for yourself, you're setting yourself up for success. Absolutely. And as an aside, that basting stitch is just like a visual guideline. Like you're not securing anything. It's just to help you look at it and it will come out as you're doing your final stages of your steak. I almost think with my vast experience with this and my (laughs) immense success that I've had 100% of the time, I almost think that I would prefer to baste the two stitches on either side of the stitch that I'm cutting. Tell me why that's a bad idea. It's not necessarily a bad idea. It depends on how wide your bridge is. Oh. If your bridge is five stitches wide, you need to be securing stitch two and stitch four. Oh. So you don't want to baste those because that's where your securing happens. But if you have a seven stitch wide bridge or a nine stitch wide bridge, You can baste the two stitches around the center stitch as your visual guide and then secure further out. Oh, cool. A wider bridge gives you a larger edge to turn under and do your finish work on. Ooh, can we talk about the creation of this bridge? Because let's say you're doing this for the first time because you want to turn a pullover into a cardigan. So there aren't actually instructions for the steak. 
Did we just talk about this on a recent episode? Last week, Angela asked us about this, and we didn't talk about specifically how to do it. We just told her that was one of her two options. Right. So you're thinking about these five or seven or nine stitches. You're casting those on as additional stitches, but not in your initial pass. I think your inclination is to, but you don't need your bridge to go all the way up to your collar or to the bottom of your hem. And my initial thoughts were to do that too, but I did a little reading. If you're knitting a top-down sweater, you would cast on your collar stitches, and if it's a ribbed collar, you just knit the ribbing flat, and then when you get down to the actual knitting, so you're done with the ribbing and it's just your stockinette, then you will cast on your five or seven stitches and join in the round. Oh! Which, now that I've considered that, it makes it easier because once I tried to do that by casting on extra stitches and I couldn't figure out what I had done. (laughs) Right! Because my pattern wasn't written for the beginning of my round being at the front center of my neck. Oh. Oh. Right. So you will need to account for where the designer tells you your beginning of round stitch marker will be and place a beginning of round stitch marker there, though that's not necessarily where your steek panel is. Right. So you don't have an arm coming out of your shoulder blade and an arm coming out of your sternum or something. (laughs) Yes. Arm placement's important. If you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, your arms are where they are. (laughs) You need the sweater to cooperate. So let's talk about a couple of the securing methods. Sure. So this is what you're doing on either side of the stitch that you're cutting to keep it from going wildly wrong once you take your scissors to this thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. And like we know from experience, sometimes that can happen. But the more information you have, the better prepared you are to stop it. As an aside, the reason that cutting your sweater is not as terrifying as it sounds is that knitting unravels vertically. Oh, true. We create those stitches horizontally working across a row, but when you drop a stitch, it doesn't run sideways. It just falls down in a column. Right. So in theory, if you have cooperative yarn and secure edges, you shouldn't have to be too worried about this because things don't want to run horizontally. They just want to fall vertically. Okay. So the first way to do this is a crochet technique. Okay. I'm real bad at that. I've done it (laughs) once, and I'm terrible at it. But basically what you're doing is you're taking contrast yarn. You've got a hook that's smaller than the needles you knit your project on because you need your crochet stitches to be smaller than your knit stitches here. Okay. If they're the same size or bigger, you're going to get a wacky, like, ruffled edge. So if you knit your stitches of your sweater on a 5 millimeter, use, like, a 3 millimeter hook to do the single crochet. If you are left-handed, you're going to work up the right side and down the left side if you're a lefty crocheter. And if Mm -hmm. you're a righty, you're going to work up the left side and down the right side. And that's because those single crochet stitches will lean in different directions depending on which direction you're working up and down your fabric on. But in our five-stitch bridge example, you're doing this single crochet on stitches two and four. Once you've crocheted that and secured it, what happens is the tension of the crochet stitches are going to kind of pull on the legs of that center stitch. It pulls them apart so they open up a little bit, and you can see the ladder that runs up the center of the stitches. That's handy. Yeah, it's kind of amazing to watch it open up, and that's where you're going to be cutting. If 
you are fumbly with a crochet hook. (laughs) And the crochet hook is scarier than the actual steaking. (laughs) That's me. There are other options for you. You can hand sew your steaks to be secured, and you can do that with an actual sewing needle and actual thread. Okay, so not yarn. Nope. If you're sewing your steaks, you'll want to use sewing thread. Can we do an aside? Mm Mm-hmm. There are probably people listening to this who also sew, and Mm -hmm. so they have thread that they purchased in the last decade. If you are not somebody who also sews, you may also have thread. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, not old thread. Right. This is a very good point, Karen. Thread has an expiration date on it when it's in a spool. If you have, as I do, your grandmother's sewing basket with thread that she put in it in 1951, go buy another spool of thread. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You should. You don't want to get halfway up and it breaks, or even worse, halfway through cutting and it breaks. Thread kind of dry rots after a while in the spool. Yep, it dry rots. It can get sun damage if you're like, I love these decorative spools of thread from Nana. I leave (laughs) them out where I can see them and love the colors. No, you've destroyed that thread. It's, It's no longer functional for you. And when Karen said there's an expiration date on your spool, Not literally. Right, right. Not like a Twinkie or something. (laughs) It's just time is your enemy here. Yeah, so you're doing this in the same place as the crochet securing up stitch two, up stitch four in our five stitch example. If you're hand sewing, I've seen it recommended from numerous sources to do it twice. Oh, just do it twice. It's going to take you a couple of minutes, but then you're going to have the sweater for a long time. It's going to take you a lot less time than purling all that color work would have. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if people are familiar with what backstitching is, so we'll link to a tutorial. It's fairly intuitive, but we'll link to a tutorial. Because we're nice. (laughs) We're helpers. Okay, so here's Jessica's preferred technique, and it scares the life out of me. And that is you get out your sewing machine and do some kind of wizardry. This is, yeah, for sure my favorite. My first steaking adventures were with crochet, and I was like, there has to be a different way because I do not love this. Machine sewing is my jam. So you can use a straight stitch up stitches two and four. Do it twice as if you were hand stitching. That is totally an option. My preferred method, though, is a zigzag stitch. Couple of pro tips here. If you're going to zigzag stitch your steaks, A, you need good lighting. First of all, because you need to be able to focus on column two and on column four and not be drifting wildly. Right. (laughs) The other thing you need to do is check that you can adjust the width of your stitches. Some sewing machines only do zigzag stitch, and that zigzag stitch is only one width. If that width is much narrower or much wider than your actual knit stitch columns, not a good option for you. But if you can adjust the width so that it's the same width as your stitch, and you can just boop, boop, boop back and forth over that column two and column four, you're securing both of them, then you can just zigzag your way down. So wait, when you're doing this, you have the needle on your sewing machine, Uh and you're aiming that needle basically through the yarn or on the outside of the stitch. So when I do this with a zigzag, I go back and forth around that stitch. Okay. Like I'm jumping over it side to side. 
you need to go very slowly. So turn the speed on your machine all the way down so you don't get nervous and lean on your presser foot pedal and send it through there fast (laughs) because it'll distort your knitting. So nice and slow and you kind of just push it through and voila, it's secure. Those are not really going anywhere. And you'll see that it pulls those stitches, that secured stitch is pulled away from the center stitch. There's tension on it from the sewing thread. And it's easier to see stitch three because two and four are being pulled out and away from it. Okay, as somebody who doesn't sew, I'm going to say at all, (laughs) (laughs) I have questions. Uh How do you put a tube with arms on it? Through a sewing machine in a way that the arms don't pull it in a direction that you don't want it to go. I'm picturing the sort of bulk of fabric that at some point, because you're concentrating, right? Mm -hmm. At least for me, the time I did this, it was like adrenaline tunnel vision. Like (laughs) you're, you're concentrating and then you have this mass of arm. (laughs) Yeah, you do. That at some point is going to hit the side of your machine You're not going fast enough that it should hit the side of anything. (laughs) Okay, this is not like a bus tunneling through. You're very slowly feeding the fabric, and you need to pay attention to make sure that you just have the top layer, just the front of your sweater. So you're kind of adjusting and rolling that fabric through so you're not also securing the front of your sweater to the back of your sweater. You're just kind of pushing and slowly squishing things around. And when you get up to the point in the yoke where now you've got an arm in the way, you just kind of take that arm and tuck it through so it's hanging out of the back of your sewing machine and no longer in your way. You're going slow enough that at any point you can take your foot off the pedal and stop and adjust your fabric and then continue going. Okay. This is very slow. I mean, faster than hand stitching, but this is a concentrated, careful process. If you're going fast enough that you need to worry about arms flying around, like you are are doing a different thing than I've done and I don't know how to support you. This is why I'm not a sewer, because I feel like the machine moves too fast for me. It can go very slow, but I think that maybe the the chaos energy that you bring to the process makes you want to go faster. Right, right. Anyways, machine securing your steaks are the most secure way to deal with slippery fibers. Oh, smart. So superwash wool, alpaca, plant fibers, things that don't want to cooperate, get them to submit with your sewing machine. (laughs) Okay, what about the most chaotic of chaos methods where you don't secure anything? Hold on to your needles, friends, because this is a real thing. Some people just cut. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to think this was the original method. It's probably the original and one that continues to exist. If you've got very grippy yarn, so like a nice woolly feeling Shetland wool or some lopey, you're doing one of those beautiful like ski sweaters and you're using actual lopey yarn, Icelandic sheep, things that have lots of toothiness to it. Just take your scissors and cut. Be free. (laughs) I feel like these are the uninhibited knitters who are just like, universe, you'll take care of my knitting. Believe in the process. Apart from just the general feeling, this feels pretty safe. Yeah, this is all just an emotional journey, friends. Oh, yeah. To get past your hurdle and assess the materials that you have in front of you so you can make your best choices. 
Speaking of materials, should you grab your enormous kitchen shears to do the cutting? I mean, maybe if you have like a big bulky project, but like chances are your stitches are pretty small. So maybe not the kitchen shears. But very sharp is important. So maybe if your kitchen shears, it's those or the sad safety scissors that you use to like saw open your Amazon boxes. (laughs) Don't get the sticky dull ones. Use your sharpest best option. But really like very sharp embroidery snips are great. Or like sewing shears. You just want a very sharp edge because if your scissors are not sharp or they have tape or glue on the blades, Uh you're going to be trying to saw through your stitches. And that's not best practice. I hadn't thought about sewing shears. That's smart. That would probably work really well because you're cutting fabric. Mm -hmm. I've even seen people use rotary cutters, (gasps) which stresses me out a little bit because they're just so sharp and I'm so clumsy. Right. I've definitely hurt myself with rotary cutters before. So the thought of just like whoop up the front of a sweater A little stressful for me. Scissors feel like they reduce the chances of you accidentally cutting the other side of your fabric. Okay, so you have done the scary thing. You have set your scissors or your rotary cutter or the hamster you're going to have chew its way up the (laughs) column of stitches to the side. Yeah. (laughs) And now you have two sides of something that used to be connected. And what now? Well, now you are triumphant. You (laughs) pump your fists in the air and pour yourself a seltzer or some other celebratory beverage. But now you've got to finish your steak. And I'm just going to take you on a quick journey through some of your options because some of them are functional choices. Well, they're all functional choices, but some are different degrees of aesthetic. So if you have crocheted your secure lines of your steak, you don't have to do anything. Because that single crochet stitch is securing those stitches. The securing has already happened, and you can just kind of let those hang out on the inside of your brand spanking new cardigan and let them felt over time. Because you definitely don't want to use super wash yarn ever to secure a steak, so you're letting your woolly wool do its thing. And whatever front finish work, whether you're doing a button band or just like a neckline, like that's totally your aesthetic choice. We're just focused on the steak. Right. We should maybe mention that because as you're Mm -hmm. picturing this happening, you have this cut piece of fabric. You are very likely coming back and doing something to that new edge. Mm -hmm. You're going to be adding a button band or you're going to be adding a zipper. At the very least, you're going to be doing some decorative work. But it's not just going to be now you've made a cardigan that has fringe. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we did predict the dicky, Karen. (laughs) Perhaps it's the next look. (laughs) 2023. Okay, so if you didn't do a crocheted edge, what do you do? Okay, so you can take your section of bridge, like your little bridge flap, and just fold it to the inside of your sweater and you can hand stitch it into place. Use that sewing thread or use a much lighter weight yarn and just kind of like catch it on the inside of your stitches so your needle's never poking through to the front side of your fabric and just kind of tack it down. Blanket stitch is a good option for that, but really whatever works for you is fine. You can also hide it, fold it to the inside, and stitch down some ribbon over it, like a gross grain ribbon of some sort. Oh, so you're still hand stitching in that case. Yep. I did that with my Rhinebeck sweater one year. That's right. It was like Rhinebeck morning, and I was was like, I'm almost done with this ribbon. (laughs) That would be a cool chance to add something contrasty and like a secret detail. Yeah, definitely. 
I have little rainbow ribbons running down the inside of my very not rainbow sweater. So I can just like flash knitters. <laughs> Be like, boom, rainbow. I have heard of something called a steak sandwich, and I don't know what that is. My first steaking process was a steak sandwich. And I used a crochet edge to secure my steaks. And then I cut my steak. And then I was like, this looks horrible. What did I do? <laughs> because I think my crochet hook wasn't small enough. The edge was kind of ruffly. And I was like, I got to fix this. So I did some reading about steak finishing options and a steak sandwich. And boy, autocorrect is going to bite you on that one. Oh, yeah. Steak sandwich <laughs> is when you pick up stitches all the way up the front of your sweater as if to knit your button band and bring it around to the inside of your sweater and you pick up stitches all the way down the back side of your sweater and then you are knitting basically like a tube around that edge. So you're knitting fabric up around it. You're making a sandwich like that's the bread and the little cut crocheted edge is the filling. <laughs> And then you will close that off either with kitchener stitch or a three needle bind off. Or when I did it, I did an I-cord edge so I could incorporate buttonholes in that I-cord edge. And it's just like a squishy little pocket of knitting at the front edge of your cardigan. It's pretty cute. I think we have that one in the store. We do. Yeah, it's a shop sample. Steak sandwich. <laughs> All right. And then there are a couple of other methods that are available only to those with a strong constitution. <laughs> so there is a technique called a knotted steak, and your bridge is unraveled and then cut. So I think you just drop down all those bridge stitches. Oh, which would be kind of nice because then you're looking at big, long strings mm -hmm. and kind of terrifying because you're dropping stitches. Because you got like spaghetti fingers down the whole length of the sweater. <laughs> Gross. Well... So you cut, and then you have these fringy edges. To secure them, you tie a knot at every single end. And then, this is not for people who hate weaving in ends, you're going to take your darning needle, or a little crochet hook if they're not long enough for a darning needle, and you're going to work them back into the fabric that they're coming out of. That's wild. It is. It's kind of neat looking. It's very tidy. And it is slow. So it's for people who, like, love the process. I don't think there's really any way to steak that will get you out of doing a fair amount of finishing work. Mm -hmm. On some level, you're making up for the work you got out of by not having to purl with just this one thing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's just different work. Unless your method of steaking is the diligent application of time. Yes. <laughs> so another option for finishing your steak is not finishing your steak. This, I will say, would not work on superwash. No. It will only work on something that you could felt regular way. Yeah. So you're just going to cut your steak and then you're going to make your button band or your edge work, whatever you're doing to finish your sweater. But that steak just lives its life. And over time and wear, it will felt. It will resolve its own issues. <laughs> Just use your wooliest wools for that kind of process. And because you can, maybe take some pictures every six months or a year to document its evolution because <laughs> it's going to do what it does and it was no additional work for you. And this really will work best, obviously, with something with quite a bit of grab to it. Mm -hmm. Lopia's prime self-felting material, like a really wooly Shetland, that kind of thing. I'd like to think this is also the original technique. 
in the show notes, we're going to add a link to uh, Kate Davies' blog post about steaking, where she has shared a number of great photos of different steak finishes. And amongst them, there is an unfinished steak that is old. I don't know, it was steaked in the 50s or something. And it has just kind of felt it on its own. Okay, I'm going to do this. I am going to replace my bad experience with a good experience with steaking. I'm going to do it with a swatch so I don't have emotional attachment to it. I'm going to make a swatch out of like some wool stock or something. And we're going to see what happens. It'll be good. You can do this. (laughs) I support you. I encourage you all to experiment. There are lots of tutorials online and everyone's going to like a different process. So Jessica, what's on your needles right now? I'm still working on my Soric very slowly. Lots of stockinette in the skirt. And I have not gotten to the fun part yet where I color work, knit my patch pockets and steak them. Ah! Nor the yoke where I knit the chest as a tube and then steak my armholes. So it's in my future, but I'm not even nearly close yet. <laughs> Wait, your pattern has steaked armholes in it? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, the dress is knit as a tube. And then you just continue knitting a tube for the bodice, basically, and then you cut the color work open and then do finish work around the arms and across the neckline. Okay, with the understanding that it's happening in the time that it happens, you're going to have to document that a little bit. I'll try and remember to take pictures because I've never steaked in this particular way, only the fronts of cardigans, so this will be interesting. What's on your needles, Karen? Socks. I'm doing so many socks. The ones I've been working on primarily are still the amber wing socks. I've got a couple of other projects going on that I keep not knitting as many hours as I would like to, but that's how it goes sometimes. All right, Jessica. Yes, Karen? Are you ready for a letter? That was a lot of steaking, but maybe. Yeah, (laughs) I think I can do it. This week's letter comes from Allie. Hi, Allie. I typically wind all of the yarn I need for a project or two at one time. I've recently stumbled across videos and posts online that have me wondering if that's the proper approach. Is it bad for the yarn to be in a cake or ball for too long? And what's the proper approach when it comes to winding yarn? That's a good question, Allie. I think that if you're winding yarn for projects that you're actually about to start working on, you're fine. You don't need to be concerned with winding up four skeins of worsted weight to knit something and having it take the time it takes to knit it. The cautionary tale about winding yarn is winding it and then putting it away for extended periods. And not like coming back to that project in two months. It sits in your stash for 12 years. Right. In your attic or your (laughs) basement. Just tucked away long-term storage. Because when you wind your yarn, whether it's with a swift and a ball winder or you're hand winding the balls, winding it up puts tension on the fiber. And over long periods of time, that tension will have adverse effect on your stored yarn, but not like six months or even a year. I think that you're probably okay. The only other thing to really consider is, do you want to wind all of the yarn if you're not sure you need all of the yarn, right? If I am knitting a sweater and I think I need to wind 10 skeins of yarn, maybe I wind six skeins of yarn because I'm positive I will go through that much. But partway through knitting, I might decide, you know what? This sweater is not getting sleeves. 
I've definitely done that before. (laughs) Like there are numerous skeins that are totally irrelevant. That's going to be a hat someday, but I'm tired of knitting with this yarn, so not this year. (laughs) Like it doesn't need to sit around in a cape. You know, maybe you can wait with those. But even if you did wind all of them, it's okay. It's probably technically better for long-term storage to have it in a hank or a bullet or whatever the original put-up was. But, like, live your yarn life. It's going to be okay. Yeah, but I think you're okay, Allie. If you're picking a project and selecting your yarn and then winding for one or two, that yarn is okay. Should we do a make-good-stash-down check-in? Y'all are busting stashes. You have knit (laughs) so much. So quickly, and it is the beginning of February still, so there is a lot to come. We're posting your pictures in our stories on Instagram, though, and pretty soon I'll make a highlight so you can just access them all in one place. But we are thrilled to see how many stash-based projects you've started or works in progress you're finishing. It's so much fun to watch. And you can join at any time. We've gotten a couple questions asking if it's too late to join. Pshaw is what I say to that. (laughs) There are rules, but barely. If you want to join the Knit Along, just start working on your project. If you want us to see your project and have you be considered as a potential prize winner at the end, you need to use the hashtag MakeGoodStashDown. Please don't put a year on that. I'm not looking at other hashtags. (laughs) Just one, because there are so many. It's the only way I can keep track of them. But hashtag make good stash down. And if you want to be eligible to win the prize at the end, you need to also follow the Make Good Pod account and the Scratch Supply Co account. But you don't need to finish by the end of the knit along. No. We support you at whatever stage of your knitting you're in. I think that might be it for us this week. You can listen to us anywhere you get your audio podcasts. Rate and review us. It will help other knitters find us. Tell your friends. Everyone loves word of mouth. You can follow us on Instagram at makegoodpod. We'll be posting some videos of me getting over my steak anxiety. Big, big thank you to our Patreon supporters. We appreciate you. You're fantastic. You're the best. You help us keep doing this every week and never have advertising. You can visit our website, makegoodpod.com, and check out all the show notes. They're also available maybe by swiping in some direction on whatever app you use to get podcasts. And send us your questions. You can use the contact form on our website. You can send us an email directly to dearscratch at scratchsupplyco.com or click on the little microphone at the bottom of our website and leave us a voicemail. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.